Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to History Hacks, dedicated Second World War air power podcast, Hedge Hopping with me, Matt Bone. Today's sortie is part two of our conversation with Dr. Philip Blood about his new book, Birds of Prey. In part one, we looked at the hunter's mentality, especially when it applies to the Luftwaffe and the men within it. In part two, we're going to be looking more towards the forest themselves. And we're also going to talk to Phil about the late, great Richard Holmes, who is a man I never got to meet, but I never miss an opportunity to talk about the great man with those who knew him best. I'm going to start by asking Phil, what were Goering's ambitions in the East and what was he going to do with these forests now that he has his hands on them? Well, one of the interesting things about Hermann Goering is he was tasked by Hitler to create the Greater German Reich, which this, this idea of a Germany without unchanged borders, with fixed borders, is quite, is, is, is a historical issue going all the way back to time immemorial. Where is Germany's borders and how fixed are they? AJP Taylor likes used to make jokes about Germans, Germany's borders. But what I think nobody has really focused upon is how Goering was going to create the German state and have fixed frontiers. And that didn't matter which nations were destroyed in the process, in particular in the East, Poland. So what we have is a massive border running all the way down from, from uh, East Prussia, cutting through Be Belarus and Poland and going down to Ukraine. And the Gauleiter in East Prussia is also the, the Reich Commissar of the Ukraine. Now, that is not really important to us. What's important is an area of ground, of terrain, that, that became known as Bidzirk Biliostok. And this is really a special district and a portion of land which was attached to East Prussia. And in this area, there was the, the forest that we're going to discuss in a minute. But what this actually did was to create a larger mass of East Prussia to the tune of over several hundred thousand hectares. Now we're into like a state suddenly acquiring the whole of the Shenandoah Valley. Not once, not twice, not three times, but maybe four times. And all of that mass of territorial acquisition had to be managed and controlled and dominated. Now, 
when Bezirbiliostok was created on the 1st of August, there was, it was still unclear where the main borders were going to go until Russia was defeated. Okay, they come to the plan. The Germans speed up the plan. The final solution is speeded up. All of those processes were speeded up in 1942. But in 1941, when they, when they get into this area of Poland that becomes known as Bezirk-Biliostok, Goering sends out a, whole, a number of his foresters and hunters and gives special orders to a chap called Eric Fondenbach-Tolewski, who is the chief of SS operations in Army Group Center rear area. And with his police force, with Baksalevsky's police force and the seven hunters and foresters, including Ulrich Sherping, Walter Freyder, um, and several other characters, they take over the forest area of Biavisha. Now, this forest was the royal forest of the Polish kings. So it's got a huge tradition going back, way back. Um, I believe the term, the Germans use the word Bielowicz, um, and it's easier to say because my Polish isn't very good, but uh, Biavisha means white tower, I believe. Um, and this forest was surrounded by um, uh, Russia on one side, Lithuania on the other, Poland, the main owner of the area. And at one stage during the Lithuanian-Polish Commonwealth, it was the forest of the Lithuanian-Polish kings. Now, come 1806, well, after the third partition of Poland, the area fell under East Prussia. But in 1806, during the Napoleonic Wars, Russia takes the area back, uh, takes the area into itself, and it becomes a czarist forest. That remains in play till 1915 when the German army invades. After the First World War, it goes back to being a Polish forest. Poles and Russians fight through the forest in, in the um, Soviet-Polish War. Then it remains a Polish forest right the way up until 1939, when the German army marches into the forest, but under the rules of the Ribbentrop-Molotov uh, Agreement, the forest is handed back. It's believed that the Germans imposed some rules and caused some horrors and killed some civilians. It's a story that they killed an innkeeper. The Soviets came in. The Soviets started to take out the Polish intelligentsia, especially the foresters and the teachers and academics. And then the Germans came in a little while later in June 1941, um, the German army in question was Hermann Geyer's 9th Corps, part of Army Group Center. They three divisions smashed into the forest. Uh, they went through the forest in about seven days uh, on the way to surrounding the southern, the southern perimeter of the uh, surrounding Bialystok, which became the Bialystok pocket. Many of the Russian forces were scattered and dispersed into the forest. So there was continuous fighting with Russian stragglers for several weeks and months later. Uh, meanwhile, in the main forest area, going at, as I said, had sent in his foresters and Baksalevsky, and they proceeded to depopulate the forest. 
by the tune of about 10,000 um, civilians who they exported to various towns and villages in different places, literally took the people out of the forest village, dumped them on another community, and just left them there to survive um, on, their on, the, on their new neighbours. Um, then the police went in and started destroying all the villages. They destroyed about 50 settlements in the northeast, northwest area of the forest. Uh, and then in July, they started to round up Jews and what they believed were communist agitators. And on the 5th of August, 1941, uh, they slaughtered 270, around about 270 Jews, men aged 16 to 60, and the rest of the Jewish community, all from one town, mostly from one town called Naraf Kamala, um, were shipped off to a ghetto come prison camp uh, in a place called Prozini, which is uh, Prozana today. So that event, that essentially cleared out the whole of the Jewish community in Biavisha Forest in the space of a month. Now, what, what's actually happened there is they've taken away a community that had been there since the 1600s. Now, where this is taking place is known, which had been known under um, Russian control as the Pale of Settlement, because this was the area where Jews had been allowed to settle. So, okay, there's only a small Jewish community in Narav Kamala, there had been a few Jews in Biovisha, the town. There was a few others working in the forest. There were several others in, in um, Lithuania, just up the road, communities that had worked in the forest. Just to give you an idea, Simon Sharma, his family had worked in that forest and he had come, his emigration, his, his immigrant family had, had come from that part of the world as uh, Jewish uh, forest workers, timber workers. And strangely enough, uh, Howard Jacobson, who's a British novelist from Cheetham Hill, where I come from in Manchester, his community came from that part of the world too. So, uh, oh. it, it, you know, there's a connection there. My father went to, went to university with Howard Jacobson's brother or sister, I'm sorry, I can't, can't remember that. But anyway, the point is, the, this... Biavisha was known. It's not a place that wasn't known. In the First World War, the Guardian was talking about, or just after the First World War, the Guardian was talking about this area as being very important to the future Polish state. So it was or, a blank spot on the map. That this is not a blank it. spot, yeah. but suddenly it's just descended on. It's, it's very popular. Now, if I, if I can take you back to 1937, Goering holds a conference on hunting in Berlin. Uh, it was like the Olympic Games, but only for hunting. And the Polish stand, they brought a huge model of the forest. And I mean, a kick-ass model of the forest. And they even brought a European bison. And the European bison had been indigenous to the forest. But actually, the last one had been killed by a Polish um, bandit in 1919. It had been he chopped it to pieces. And that was the last female of the original bison breed. But they took bison from the Plesser state and some Caucasian Russian bison, brought them back into Poland, 
started to rebreed them. And then the bison that were in the German forests, which had been captured during the First World War, and other breeds that had been pushed to Paris and London and New York, they were brought in to do breeding too. So there was this kind of restoration, not like hex cattle. Uh, here we're rebreeding the European bison back into um, the forest. Now, when the Germans arrived, one of the, <laughs> one of the first things they did, the hunters and the foresters, would go straight to the bison pens, which they had visited after the 1937 uh, exhibition. Uh, there was a reciprocal agreement and they came to the forest and they saw it all. Now, just because I know you like a little bit of humour, the reason why Hermann Goering never, ever visited again was Goering had a morbid fear of snakes. He's, I keep, that's, he's got this fetish of this place and he's scared of it because it's got, it might have snakes in it or it does have snakes in it. I told you these dudes are dodgy. <laughs> they're, they're totally unreal but there's a there's a hunting island called Das or well it's a conservation island called Das which the Nazis used for conservation and hunting in the Baltic and Goering arrived there maybe 1936 whatever it doesn't matter um, and he was told by one of the gamekeepers that the island was full of adders um, and Goering went completely Lulu. And <laughs> he told the forester, this, what can we do? And the forester said, well, hedgehogs eat adders. <laughs> uh, the story gets better. Give me a minute. And then, <laughs> and then <laughs> Goering phones up Lutz Heck, who by then is the director of the Berlin Zoo, and says, I want 300 hedgehogs in <laughs> Imported into Das to immediately eradicate all the all the adders. Well, okay, that didn't happen, and Lutz calmed him down. The problem was Goering never hunted in Das again. So now we get to the story of Goering in hunting in Biavisha. Well, in February 1937, see, this is the point. You have to look at the dates. February 1937 or 38, some one of the two, I can't remember which. He goes to hunt in Biavisha. Why? Well, in February, all the snakes are asleep. So he can wander around doing his thing and being a hunter. Now, many historians have turned around and said, oh, well, he got all these invites and, all he, and you know, he kept going every year. He didn't because he was frightened. And that's why you have a high stand in Remington because the high stand is round cut grass and there's no way a snake's going to go anywhere near the high stand because they have the guys all standing around making sure that no snake is going to go anywhere near Fatty. So you've got this incredible situation where the guy who has this monstrous ambition for this part of eastern Poland won't actually go there, ever, never, ever. And actually, on his choo-choo, it would only take him two hours. And he was travelling all over the place, going around shooting animals. You know, he'd steal treasure from Monte Cassino, and then he'd go off somewhere and do some shooting. So 
it's not like that he couldn't he didn't have the gear because he'd get into Asia his steam train and off he'd drive and then he'd be there and he'd do his thing and he knew what was going on because they had the best communications ever on a railway train so he, he knew everything that was going on and what the Fuhrer was doing for tea that day so he didn't have to worry about being you know cut off he was never cut off it's just that he wouldn't go hunting in a forest where there's snakes and that's it so he's relying on Ulrich Sherping, Freyvert, Baksalevsky and all, all these other people to tell him what's going on. And I think one of the, one of the comments I think you made was there isn't, there isn't much responsibility. Was that, was that the term you used? There's no kind of control function going on here. There's no oversight. They're all relying on people in the field making their own decisions doing it as they do well that's the point Goering is because of his foibles and his morbid fears and his weaknesses he has to rely on people to do things for him and also when he was in the Richthofen squadron when he was the circus boss he led by delegation he didn't lead by example so you've already got a guy who's the old Prussians, because that's how he was taught at, at, at cadet school in Lichterfelder, that you don't, you, you don't do it yourself, you delegate. And now he's delegating again and again and again, and so you see all of this. And he delegates, and you know, he gives a letter to Heydrich and Himmler for the final solution. So he's de and, delegating and diluting all at the same time. Yeah, and... Yeah. and you know, he doesn't want to be known as a non-hunter who can't hunt when there's no snakes. But similarly, he doesn't want to be heard of killing Jews. And yet he orders his men to kill Jews. And then when they've killed Jews, he says, no, I don't want that because I don't want that on my record. So you've got a guy who's he's pretty Janus-faced about everything that he does. I mean, a really slippy character. I mean, Hitler says, I don't want any of this on my record. And so they all say, yeah, okay. But the problem with Goering is he wants to be in the forest doing this stuff. But he's too frightened. And, and that creates these, this ripple effect in what's going on. The decisions are all, they're not, the, the guys on the ground are the consistent ones. The ones above were all over the place. Does that make sense? It, 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 yeah, it does, and it's it's the weak the weakness of command in this in this situation, isn't it? It's you you have, I guess, quite flaky orders coming down, and then the knowledge that the oversight isn't going to be there unless it's winter time and the snakes are asleep. Yes, but then. See, when you, just when you think that they're being careful, Ulrich Sherping, who is his, his main hunter, goes to, the, to this forest. And at the end of the year, having done what they've done, which is actually, you know, destroy all these people and what have you, he writes an article for the, for the National Popular Hunting Journal and tells everybody, apart from, you know, he didn't actually kill people. You know, they make it very clear that they cleared the vermin, which pretty much means the same thing. 
and he puts it into a Christmas message for the Hunter's Journal. So 275,000 people know about this before you've even, before you're even thinking about secrecy rules over the Holocaust, because he's just announced it. But he, he's announced it to a group of people in a way by saying there's this hunter's paradise that we're creating for you. Yes. But they're also the same people who go around saying blah, 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 because they're blabbers. Mm. I mean, this is the other thing about the hunters. You, you know, these are the people who don't talk about the one that got away. They, get, they talk about the one they killed. Mm. Yeah. And if you kill Soviets and Jews and other vermin on top of everything else, then you know that's all part of that's all part of being noble hunter or the Nazi noble hunter because you've killed the Jews, you've killed the Bolsheviks, you've killed Poles, you've depopulated the place. And just when you think that that's the game plan, they start importing Germans into the forest. So having taken the populations out to make it a wilderness, they then start putting Germans back in to make it. A wilderness, <laughs> but but a but a German wilderness, a German wilderness with people in it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> I mean they just crack me up, really. Because just when you think they're doing something which is you know doctrinal, straight down the line, properly organised, well led, blah blah, they go and do the opposite. I suppose it's in keeping with them but it's in keeping by going against everything that they supposedly hold dear. If that's yeah. not a completely circular statement. No, that's precisely okay. it. And, and what you're in danger of, if you follow them blindly and not say, okay, enough now, you're just being silly. If you follow them blindly, they will lead you into circles and it becomes ever so much... Well, it, you know that thing when you go down the slide and it's circular and helter skelter. It's a helter skelter scenario, and you're thinking, "My God, but what day did anybody know what was actually going on?" Because hmm. they just every minute changing, and um, we we see this a little bit later after the beers up yet. Yeah, Berserk Biliostok administration is formulated. You get the SS in one part of the place and you get the army in another part of the place and you get the civil administration in yet another place. Goering comes along and says, right, we're going to send in the, this training battalion of uh, young men to police the area and all the riffraff, the army, the SS can all bugger off. So he sends them out under a general order, which is a Bandamikampfung order, which is that all training units, operational training units, will be assigned to combating partisans and bandits, uh, which is issued in August uh, the 18th, 1942. And this battalion of trainees, the first three companies, is taken from a training, uh, uh, training centre in East Prussia, they're put on rubbish vehicles. They're given Belgian white weapons uh, from the Great War and sent to the forest with the thinnest of orders. Nobody actually knows what they're supposed to be doing, least of all themselves. Uh, they take a long time to get there because it's clear they don't know where they're going. 
And when they get there, they don't know what their orders are. And then a German officer takes over and says, right, well, one lot of you can go over there and another lot of you can go over here. He breaks them all up and takes over. And so they're technically, for a short period, not under Luftwaffe command. Now, having screwed up on all of that process, Goering then gets his top security officer from the Balkans, gives him a talking to in Karen Hall and say, you know, this is a big ambition and all the rest of it, sends him off to the forest to take over. Well, the guy he sends in is your typical barrack room lawyer type because he's a trained business notary who's going to go in and, and push push German military rules down the throat of anybody who's going to compete with him. It's a clever strategy. You know, when all else fails, you say, I, I have the authority of the Reich Marshal of Greater Germany. Who the hell's going to argue with that? Because that's even, that's like number two to Hitler. And everybody has to deal with the top soldier and agree with what he says. So Goering being Germany's top soldier, which, you know, still shocks people when they hear that, when he commits an order and an authority, that person has that authority. And so this major arrives in the forest, takes over the two companies or three companies, recreates the battalion, um, investigates their, their performance under the German army command and uses the failures to bombard the army with complaints of um, incompetence, which is pure Nazi behaviour. While pushing, he's there, pushing focus away from you onto somebody else so that you can get, you don't look as bad initially. Yeah. Yeah, I think we've seen it in certain kinds of behaviour in governments not far away from you at this moment, but let's not elaborate. One would one, 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 one make that. <laughs> Not my fault. It wasn't me. I wasn't there. It's all your fault. You did it, all of it. Yes, well, if, if, so, you know, if you surround yourself with idiots, you don't look that much of an idiot yourself. Yeah. So, anyway, sorry, let's go back to it. So we get, so we get, we get a major who comes in and says, right, they've got to have guns, they've got to have uniforms, they've got to have the equipment, we've got to have the companies, and we've got to have the organisation. And Goering says, yep, you have the lot. Now, what's interesting about this story is while this major and these troops are going through these machinations, Goering holds a ceremony in Remington. Now, I've had to separate it in the, in the book because if I put it in there with the soldiers, it would have been very, very complicated to understand because you're going up and down and, and, and you're, you're not on the same wavelength but they're happening at the same time. They're happening at that very, very critical moment. The SS are pulling out of the forest, but fighting partisans, while at the same time incorporating a Luftwaffe unit, which is going to fight partisans as soon as it's made more capable. So they put it in a blocking road to hold off partisans coming into the forest so they'll shoot them. And at the same time, preparing them for an even greater mission, which is to help support operations against the destruction of the Jewish ghettos for the final solution. Now, working back, 
Goering holds a ceremony in Remington, having killed a sacrifice, a sacrificial killing of a massive stag called Matador, probably the biggest stag ever killed in the forest. Now, I've been suspicious about this killing for a long time because A, it's the biggest animal, B, it's the greatest pedigree, but why kill it then? Why at that moment? Well, first of all, you've got Himmler on the point of extracting all the valuables in gold, silver, and belongings of the Jews going into the concentration camps and then being murdered in, in Auschwitz. And in the other camps, you've got um, the chief inspector of Luftwaffe um, Medical Services is just taken in a man called Rauker's um, SS experiments at Dachau, which were run on behalf of the Luftwaffe operations. They've been released at that stage. He happened to be the same doctor who, who um, there was a film some years ago about a person having a sex operation and, and what have you. He, he, the, the, Dan the Danish girl, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah the Danish girl. Yeah, he, he was a doctor involved in that, the German doctor involved in that, which is quite strange that he'd gone from being that liberal doctor to this, this something else doctor. Uh, he died with great honours in the 60s in Berlin. But anyway, by the way. Um, so all of this information is being acquired, all this knowledge is being acquired, and all these, these final solutions to the Jewish question have all come, and they're, they're concentrated at this moment. And I think Goering conducts this sacrifice of this beast for Himmler and everybody else to say, we're going into the next phase. And it's the pinnacle of the hunting thing as a ceremonial, because what he's done is he's actually practiced publicly in front of the cameras the Nazi hunt of killing the matador, which goes into the public arena. But the story underpinning it, well, do we know whether that escapes or not? Maybe we do know, maybe we don't. Within a month of that happening, the 3rd, 4th and 5th Battalions and then the 6th Battalion, uh, the companies, 6th Company, are raised in East Prussia and are pushed into the forest to expand the, the, the um, operations of this training unit under this major who'd come in, Maya Herbst. Now, Emil Herbst is a very clever person. Um, and I mean deviously clever. His game is... I won't kill people if I don't have to, but I will make them stand in front of a trench and threaten them that if ever they do behave badly, they're going to end up in it. Now, that kind of, that kind of psychological terror um, in the way they manage civilians told me something about the Luftwaffe that I never expected, which was it's not just the point when a German officer decided not to kill, it's when a German officer was prepared to go even further and put people in such a frightening position and then exploit it. Because what he then did was take all his legal advisors from Lufgau Eins and say, this is how you do it, guys. This is how you control a community. You don't kill them, you scare them shitless. 
Yes. Now, my, my argument is he learned that in Bosnia uh, and in Crete when he was with the Fauschenjäger because he was a security officer down on the ground doing that stuff. And I suspect that's how he learned things. But imagine now, one of Goering's senior officers for a major national project is thinking like that. And not only that, he's taking young trainee soldiers who are on the point of a career in the Air Force, either as flyers, technicians, ground crew, Fauschenjäger, whatever. They're going so this is just, just to jump in there, this is essentially live fire boot camp. Yeah, live fire boot camp. That's a good term. Uh, I wish I'd used it in the book. You can have that one for free as well. Thank you. If there's ever a reprint, I'll put that in. So, with a footnote. Thanks, Matt. So, <laughs> <laughs> I'll look out for that one. <laughs> but the point is, if you've got a guy who's involved heavily with the Air Force uh, branches, with the training operations, with the Lufgau Centre, who is prepared to openly discuss, show, promote, project that kind of activity, what does that tell you about the Luftwaffe? What does it tell you about Garland's crew? They can't not know where this is going on because that's where the people are being trained. So his own fighter pilots who are going to come into the fighter force well, they've been trained in this stuff. So, okay, this time they don't shoot, but in another time they will shoot. And if they're killing civilians and partisans and Jews and what have you, if, if, that's the, if, if that's the nature of the beast, then the Luftwaffe is no more this hunters in the sky, um, ambivalent organization within the national socialist arena. They're actually head on, full on. They're in there. They're worse than the rest. Many times more worse than the rest. Because they've actually they've actually set the button, they, they, they've actually set the point to start this stuff in training. Not 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 combat troops who've been seasoned in battle and have been blooded. They're blooding training, troops in training with soft targets, defenseless people. That's a, that's a whole different ballgame. That is really, that's hard stuff. That's hardcore. You're putting that desensitization straight up, straight up front. It becomes a coherent part of the coherent part of the whole as they move forward in, into the other units. So that then bleeds out throughout the entire organization, as you're saying. It's, it, it's permeating everywhere because it's there from step, basically step one. Yeah, I'm just wondering what happens when there's, you know, I don't know, what was the Battle of Britain pilot, Falker? I mean, you know, in the film, mm. you know, Falker's sat there in the corner, he's got new guys coming in and they and he turns around and says, well, what have you done? Well, I've been running around the Polish forest shooting Jews. Mm. Excuse me? How, 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 <laughs> how does that work? Because you can't tell me that what they've done in the forest isn't going to be discussed. Yeah. 
Where, where, where did you train? I was in Bielystok. Oh, I was over in wherever. You compare notes, don't you, over a schnapps? Yes. Yeah. So the sixth company finally arrives in November, which happen, happens to be the same date when the SS decides to get rid of the two ghettos on either side of the forest. And the sixth company is deployed in such a way that it is like the net as in a fishing net. So any fugitives running from these two ghettos, running into the forest to escape, looking for sanctuary, they are going to go straight into the patrols of this company. So I wanted to have a look at where this company was trained, and it was trained in the same place as Eric Hartman. And in fact, they were together at much the same time. And I thought to myself, well, okay, if the troops are coming from a training place like that and being committed to this, is there any examples where it shows that they're not just ground personnel, but there might be something more to this? So I looked and I found that one of the men was a guy called Siegfried Adams, and he was uh, listed as an Oberjäger. In 1937, he went to the, he joined the, Justice Department in Wuppertal as a Juris clerk. Uh, he passed his gymnasium, so he was a young, qualified young man. But his apprenticeship would be civil servant in, a, in the courts. He then went in 1940. He was sent to Lufgau Eins, which is uh, based, which was based in Königsberg, and he was based in the. Judge Advocates Department of Lufgau Eins, and he worked very satisfactorily. Now, what's interesting about that position is where he was, they would have been looking at things like war crimes committed against German soldiers. They would also be looking at crimes committed by German soldiers. Um, and in the Luftwaffe, there was a strange honour code, and I saw it happen. It, again, it comes from this hunter chap, Fravert. Mm. Uh, he created an honour code um, which the Luftwaffe officers were supposed to work on, and I actually saw one case of it happening. It was in Norway. Um, Falschenjäger had landed, um, but it was too cloudy for the Junker 87s to come in and give them any support, so they had no heavy support. Uh, after the campaign, there was a complaint by the Falschenjäger to the commander of the Stukas, um, whereupon Goering put together a honor code, honor court, sorry. Uh, and I still remember it. I still remember it. The claim against the Stuka pilots by the Falschenjäger was that they didn't want to get their hair wet. <laughs> <laughs> So I knew that there's a hunting regulation, but there's also which is the honor code amongst officers. But down at the lower level, there is the rules, like King's regulations, is the German army, German Luftwaffe um, regulations. And number seven in the code of the past book, I think it's number seven, is thou shalt not kill civilians, which is odd given mm. that every German soldier has this in their passport. And 
Like many German soldiers can honestly say they didn't kill any civilians in the last war. Um, so here's this young man now being sent to operational training in the same place where Hartmann has been training. And you're thinking, okay, how much ideological infusion is taking place, learning into killing partisans and what have you? Well, they're just not there long enough. He arrives, he arrives two weeks before posting. Well, okay, if they grilled him every day into how to kill people and all Jews were evil and all the rest of it, it's possible some of it stuck, but I doubt it. I would have thought that what they were doing, and I do believe this perhaps a little bit more than the ideological, they were trying to build the company into squads and platoons ready for operational training. So they were probably working them up into squads, you know, rifle squads, then working into platoons, then getting into company in ready for the company to go. I know that sounds maybe a little bit quirky, but if you then take it to the point when, when they set up in the forest, the different strong points are different platoons are different squads. Mm -hmm. And then once it's in position, then some of the company becomes local based, i.e. non-Yag commando, and others go into Yag commando, which is the hunting commandos. So one is patrolling on a circumference, uh, sorry, uh, um, uh, what do you call it? A radius of up to seven kilometers from strong point base. The others are marching anything up to 30 kilometers from one strong point to the next or from one company headquarters to another company. The reason being is you keep going. So there'll be a patrol leaving as you're leaving and they will pass in the forest, so cutting off any options of people who are trying to get through. There's there are like two patrols passing each other in the forest, going in the opposite directions to each other, to their home bases, to their respective home bases, to cover the ground, and then you don't have to go back, because if you go back, you're wasting time. Yeah. So one goes forward, the other one goes forward, and then, then they swap over and they come back, and you... And you see these then different kind of moves of patrols cutting across, going back up to the headquarters, then cutting across into the swamps and then coming down into the forest lands and what have you. But basically, all of these coordinated patrols, and especially the Yak Commando control patrols, they're out to hunt Jews and partisans. Now, when they're out there, there isn't enough officers to lead these men. So the guys who are in command are either senior or junior NCOs. And an Obergefreiter can be leading a Yag commando. Um, a, a senior Unteroffizier can be running a local patrol. It, there, there was no rhyme or reason. From the way it worked, I got the impression that they were on a, uh, you know, it was your turn next kind yeah. of... Uh, rotation rostrum. sort of thing, yeah. Yeah, rotation, mm -hmm. rostrum kind of scenario. Um, they're there from November till March, which, you know, a lot of people say to me, the German army 
was not trained and it, troops are never trained. I mean, all of that is just rubbish. Um, German army does not commit troops into any kind of field without first. When it comes to operational training, you've got to do basic training and you've had the first base of operational training and then you do proper operational service as you do with the Luftwaffe. With the army, it's sim the same. Everybody has to have a certain period of training, it's up to four months, before you can be committed to combat. What happens with in the forest is combat comes early because you're dealing with what's not regarded as serious targets. Goering does not recommend, does not recognize partisans and bandits as serious enemies. They're just vermin. But you're blooding by killing defenseless Jews, partisans, or civilians that don't do it. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're basically saying, we go back to, as we were a while ago, talking about that lower strata in the, in the Hunter's Code. You've got your, your, pre, your premium things on the top, but... When it comes to, to partisans, bandits, and Jews, they're the equivalent of rats, essentially. Vermin, yeah. yeah. Now, for this period of combat and constant fighting Soviet partisans, it's, not, it's quite surprising that nobody's getting any medals or awards. They're not getting the Bandung Mekampfungamsaikum, which is the badge of the anti-partisans, but also they're not getting any of the assault badges or the face-to-face -face fighting. Now, one, one chap, Rudolf Trabers, he led many actions near his Yag Commando against attachments of troops and what have you. And he was quite a daring dude character, um, but he never got any awards. Now, he was mentioned in this, what you might call mentioned in dispatches, but no badges were ever awarded. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. And Maya Herbst, the battalion commander, 
if there was an incident of killings, so if they went out and they found a community of Jews, uh, Jewish fugitives, like one incident, they found 16 Jewish fugitives lying in a forest area, none of them armed. Um, when they killed them, I know the Yag Commando, but you can't know who the people were who did it. Because when they write the report, it's nameless. Because in a strange way, I suppose it's credible for what Herbs was doing as a senior officer. He was protecting the identity of the young men because technically they were committing murder on German soil. Yeah. I know this sounds a crazy logic, but you and because it's now part of the greater, it's the greater Reich. It's not. This is not occupied Russia. Yeah, this is part of Germany. So you're committing laws against people who might have a case. Hmm. So in his infinite wisdom as a jurist type individual mindset, Emil Herbst was saying. Okay, we're going to do this thing, but nobody's going to be identified doing it. That's a very interesting logic, and that goes hand in hand with that with not non award of, of of badges because yes. te technically you didn't do anything. That's right. Yeah. So when there's a firefight, someone gets a reward, maybe a pint of beer or whatever. But that's it. Now, I know from reading what, what Meyer Herbst was doing, he knew who the top guys were because he took them with him. Mm. He knows who the people are and he can distinguish between the idiots. Now, to learn how that was, I went back to his big kerfuffle with the German army officer called Koblinski. And Koblinski had committed his, the, the Luftwaffe troops to operations without really understanding how good they were. And a couple of them were pretty useless. One of them shot somebody in the arse and another one, another one committed virtual suicide and somebody else stood in front of a truck and they were, well, they were crap. And it's very interesting. He did actually, those first two companies that badly performed, he weeded them out. I can't say how much because obviously the personnel files have not survived and the records of the first companies have disappeared. But I know from what he was saying in his comments that he was weeding out officers, NCOs and ordinary soldiers. So he, this is a guy, there's no mercy. So yeah, okay, he's protecting the identity of the troops, which is semi-honorable thing to do as a commander of a battalion but by the same token he's a pretty ruthless dude yeah because yeah. I, I he's he's wanting the performance of his now nameless troops to reflect well on him which reflects well to his bosses essentially isn't it essentially yes but he's not sacrificing their their lives to his glory so he he's not getting medals from it He's not, he's not doing anything great. The only good, the, the only benefit he gets is when he negotiates with Goering over the body counts at the end. 
At the end of his service on the 5th of March 1943, so he's been there since, what, the 10th of September 1942 to the 5th of September, uh, March 1943. In that time, he's not received any awards, he's not been promoted. But he has turned that battalion from a load of rubbish into a fully functioning organisation that's not taking any truck from anybody. I mean, when the partisans hit, they hit harder. And yes, they take a few casualties. I think they had um, six killed and 20 wounded. But he's not taking any prisoners. And, and when they do have an incident, when uh, Lieutenant Sire was machine gunned on the payroll day, he managed to get all of those boys together to round up all of those civilians and kill 242 of them. You know, he's a very highly effective security officer within the, within the remit of security warfare of the German soldier. That's what you have to remember. I know it sounds like I'm, I'm on his side. I'm having to try and understand what he's doing to comprehend what, the, what on earth's going on here. So I'm not on his side. I'm not saying he's a great man. I'm just saying he's behaving in his frame of reference. His frame of reference is an honourable officer by not shafting his own troops. Yeah. That's very difficult for people to comprehend because they think you're being nice to them. Well, no, I'm not. I'm just showing that there's different standards of law mm. and legislation going on here. That what applied to an officer didn't apply to the men even though they're talking about an equal society where everybody can hunt and everybody can be jolly good dudes, you know. Not the case. Hmm. And nor is he right making any big fuss when they kill Jews. So when they go out and they do stuff, um, hmm. you know, there's one incident where they report that they found an amazing... I mean, I, I still find this fascinating. The sixth company's been there in position for less than a week they go out on a patrol or a group of them go out on a patrol. They find an emaciated woman, a Jewish woman, like that they call emaciated, lying in the forest. And because she's not got the strength to come with them, they kill her. And not only that, they just leave the body. That's, wow. <laughs> that to me was straight in my face because actually they have not been idealized into killing but they've killed and they don't have any problems. There's no crying. They've done it. And they've mentioned it in their report that they've done it. Yeah. So there's no shirking the, the, the responsibility. They killed a female. Now that is murder under German law in German society, in German territory. And and Meyer Herbst has taken that and written it into the report and then sent it to Baukic that has gone to Goering, so it's in the record. What becomes then fantastic is when, when it's decided that Herbst is going to be relieved, they're not sure where to put him, so Fravert comes down to negotiate with him and then looks at the body count and says, we can't have that body count. Then messages start passing between Fravor, Goering, and Herbst over what, what body count is acceptable. And in that mix, Herbst is given the top job of being Goering's bodyguard on his railway train. Mm. 
And what he does to get that is to change the 112 Jews down to six. Because Goering doesn't want the final body count record going to German army headquarters via Lufgau Eins, showing that his troops, under his orders, have murdered all these civilians and Jews. <laughs> and you're thinking... And yet there's still very... a paper... And yet there's still a paper trail. <laughs> Even after all of that, there's still a paper trail. And yeah, because it's the final paper. Because what 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 Emil Herbst is saying is I'll fudge your figures for a job. Yeah. But I will stick the final report on the top of the other papers because I know the civil servants will only read the top paper. <laughs> <laughs> it's a funny do, as they would yeah. say in Manchester. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to jump ahead now. So, Phil, who was Walter Freiburz, and why is he important in the story that you've been you've been telling us? Well, Freiburz is Goering's life hunter, as they call it, like Leibniz, and he's he's. Um, He's the guy that's written all the books. Now, when Goering goes in, gets into trouble and he's sent to the doghouse by Hitler, he sends Fravor to the forest to take over command of the operational troops, but asks them to run a hunting commando. Now, this is very, very different because what's actually happened now is hunting has gone from being a doctrine to a dogma in action and implemented as such. So, so this detachment of troops is dropped from 670, which was the Luftwaffe Sonderbattalion number, to about 340. And the whole premise of this, of this new unit is learning how to shoot and shooting well, in the dark, on the move, running, you name it. But it's proficiency in shooting. So it is actually the embodiment of the hunting ideas. But... The difference is Goering quietly gives them a signals unit. And that signals unit gives them the capability of using backpack radios in the forest. And you would think that that wouldn't work in a forest where there's trees and all the rest of it. But actually, the signal is magnified by the trees. So actually, backpack radios suddenly become very useful because you can now not have to rely on the strong points, but you can have troops running around all over the forest, constantly in, in radio communication, and you can react. And so what you do then is to have a special emergency troop, which one of these young, when one of these patrols runs into danger, the, the emergency troop will come out and rescue them. Well, in theory, all of that's very good. And yeah, it should work. However, it didn't. It didn't because uh, the signal boys um, who were highly regarded, high rated and were expected to become very senior officers in the Germans, in the Luftwaffe signal system, uh, they saw a moment of glory, went, went for it uh, and were shot by partisans who were waiting to ambush them. And a little while later, uh, an entire Yag commando was wiped out when it tried to attack uh, a machine gun position run by Soviet partisans. 
uh, and was massacred to a man. And suddenly things aren't working. All of the ideas of the hunt breaking down. But one incident of court, which is the most important one, which is bridging what happened, which is bridging the whole story, taking us from, from the beginning to the, to the next stage, which is the Russians arriving. Obergefreiter, or Oberjäger Nonning, was walking on a patrol with several guys. And he saw five Jews running across a forest open area. And from 500 meters, he brought them down. Now that in itself got him a recommendation and a mention in dispatches. The point is of this story is it's the only case where Fravert reports the Jews being murdered. And then afterwards, there's a huge hunt for the bunker and for the Jews in that community that were involved. And there's some ugly business torturing people and what have you. But the point is that one incident is the only incident of Jews being killed under Fravor. There are two other points where they report Jews being killed, but this is the only full-scale total report in that complete battalion record where Jews are being murdered deliberately. And you have to say that's either a reflection of the of the agreement between Fravor, Herbst and Goering over the final body count figure, now reflecting in how they're going to continue reporting under the new regime, or, and I doubt it very much, that there were fewer Jews running into the forest, and I don't believe it for a second, because there were, there were more fugitives running into the forest from various places, and we know that's the case, because... For example, there have been a breakout in Sobibor and Treblinka and these other sites, and, and there were people escaping. So I don't believe that these five Jews were the only Jews that Fravert killed. The, the thing I can never get my head around, which I, I suppose means I've not become too jaded about this, is when... When it comes to the paperwork, they're falsifying the paperwork because they know it's wrong, but they keep doing it. Yes. I, I, I suppose not not having gone gone through it or this isn't it's not there, but that disconnect between highly, highly detailed reports that are coming from just about every other operation in every theater to minutia that are, is completely pointless. Yet here, you have the opposite. You're still you're still documenting. You're still uh, reporting on you know combat operations, training combat operations, and yet your outcomes you're obfuscating because you know it's highly illegal, but you still want to be shown to be doing it to be in a good light for your superiors. It's it's just it's just utterly insane. Yeah, because the, the, the problem we all have is trying to come to a rational way of looking at this stuff to the world that we live in now. And it just, I mean, 
I understand why people don't like doing this stuff because it's so irrational, so illogical, so chaotic, so hor horrific kind of of details. I can understand um, because it, it, it quite often it's like now with the conversation we're having just does not make sense because in a rational world who would do this and it's not like after 1945 they do this no as soon as it switches off everyone goes back to normal and and i find that quite something you know you might have the conversation oh you're a white jew or you know you're this that and the other and I experienced that in the 90s. But you don't have the brutality of them coming up, you know? You know, it's like the light switch goes off in 1945 and then everybody goes back to normal. When did it start? For me, it's 1914. Mm. Yeah? I'm a long war man. I believe that this whole thing kicked off in 14 and went downhill afterwards. Well, I mean, Fravor is a First World War hero. Fought at the Battle of Verdun, got both Iron Crosses, um, superhero, highly regarded. It stops. Then afterwards, he goes to becoming uh, an ordinary hunter living in West Germany. So anyway, when Simon Wiesenthal turns up, it starts getting a bit dodgy for him. And I think that's when he committed suicide. But it stops. And you would think, hang on a minute. After all that murdering and killing, there would be something. But no, it doesn't. It stops. It's almost as if either the job's done or the job will return maybe another time. I just don't. I just think that it, it's that light bulb moment. They all stop and... You know, and there's this kind of what I do find very interesting when I used to speak to German um, soldiers and what have you. I mean, most of them are all gone now, but when I did, their memories were the last days of the war, never at the beginning. Hmm. The last days of the war when they're fighting for survival. When you're fighting for survival, all of what happened in the past disappears. So. They don't remember killing Jews because that was in 41, 42, 43. Well, 44, 45, they're fighting for survival. Well, okay, I forgot all about what happened before. It becomes all, you know. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter to them because the bigger picture was survival of, of home and hearth. Yes. Hmm. I have, and I have to say, I have a, a, a certain amount of sympathy for the ordinary soldier not saying that he's the best person in the world and you know as bad as the officers but you know this idea that somehow you could drop out and say no uh, no i don't think so there would have been such severe peer pressure you couldn't do it and i'm talking about peer pressure of your own people mm. um, it, it, it's that unit integrity that's built in isn't it it's yeah yeah, and and the other thing is, which you know, which also is was a devastating to my learning curve. If there is such a thing, was the idea that the German, these Luftwaffe men, were not primary groups; they were 
dragged from all hither and hither and hither and dither. And they were not a primary group. They didn't all come from the same area. Um, of the 17 Rhinelanders in the sixth company, the other 132 were from elsewhere. And when you track down who come from what and to whom, I mean, both the officers had been court-martialed and were on second chance. The NCOs were pretty dodgy. Several of them had to be returned because they weren't functioning properly. Um, but most of the other soldiers, they came from all over the place. And you're thinking, well, where's the primary goop here? Hmm. They're functioning. They're functioning very well. But they're not a primary group. Um, and that's when I also became suspicious of Siegfried Adam's death because I think deep down he was loathed by the people around him. I think the young soldiers would have hated him, just like today. You know, a lower middle class lad is not going to do very well amongst a bunch of working class lads because it's just not going to work. So I think he would have been isolated. And I think his medical conditions and the things that happened to him and eventually leading to his death, it's all pretty much, you know, yeah, it's not working. And, and the fact that he doesn't get a proper funeral and that he's not remembered, and then suddenly when Freybert's in the poo, decides to send a message back to his nearest and dearest that he should have a a special increase in his uh, status and be promoted after death, told me that, yeah, hang on, he's only doing this to save his neck because Freyvert was, by that stage, after the Yag Commando was destroyed, he was in a bad place because mm -hmm. all of his ideas, you know, the hunting and what have you, was already failing. So he was in a bad place. And so he was looking for ways out. Ass covering begins. Well, yeah. Well, that's the thing with the German armed forces. I nearly said the Germans. I actually meant the German armed forces. Ass covering is like, you know, the number one job. The the book's called Bird of, Birds of Prey. It is, it is a fascinating read. It's... As we were saying earlier, it's it's a, it's approaching it, I think, in the right way as a as a Holocaust book, as opposed to a, a history on on the on the Luftwaffe, and I think that's important. Um, but there's there's one last bit I'd like to chat to you about, which is not on topic, but it's about your dedication, because you've dedicated the book to the late great Richard Holmes, and it's one of my regrets that I, I wasn't able to get you on our our show. Um, to talk about Richard um, with Peter Caddick Adams and, and Cam. Um, but as I have you, and you knew the great man well, what, what are your memories of him? Um, well, I met Richard at his house the first time. Uh, I applied to do a PhD under him, having transferred from another place or under another person who shall remain nameless. And um, I was recommended to him by somebody in the family who had written a book about the Remy. Mm -hmm. And Richard had reviewed the book. And 
I was recommended to talk to Richard because Richard wasn't my first choice of where I was going to go next. I was, funny enough, <laughs> very popular in a minute, was Richard Overy. Because Richard Overy is big at, was big at University College London. So I wrote a, a letter to Richard Holmes purely speculatively, I have to be honest. Um, and I said, I want to do a PhD in German military history on this subject. And he said, oh, okay. Um, and then he got a letter from his Agifomian and said, you know, okay, fine, we'll, we'll talk about it, but I have to work it out through Steph Muir, who was his assistant. Mm. So Steph sent me a letter, and in it he said, Richard had said, I want four options. And I thought, well, hang on a minute. Why don't... <laughs> I've got an option. Why do I have to have another three? So um, I sat and thought about it, and I thought, okay. If he wants to play games, I'm going to play games back. So I had um, one book on the SS... Um, one of the SS divisions, which everybody now writes about, but didn't then. One was about the SS operations at Market Garden, which people said they wrote about, but to my mind hadn't, because I'd seen other stuff. Uh, one was about a British officer serving in the American Civil War, who'd also fought for Garibaldi and several others. Um, which fascinated me because it was in a, it's in the field which I, was actually my first love, which was the American Civil War. Mm -hmm. It's where I started my venture into military history when I was a little boy, because I've been led to believe my great grandfather had, had emigrated from Mexico because he was part of the American Civil War exodus, you know, and Confederates and all of this. All of it was rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the Mexican family side of the family emigrated in 1847 because of you know who invading Mexico. Anyway, I'm not gonna <laughs> I'm not gonna go into great detail there given what's going on in Afghanistan at the minute. Anyway. So there was another one which I think was on um the balance of foreign armies in relation to home-based armies in the American Civil War. So I was looking at the foreign units like Schultz and all of this. Yep. So I posted these back and um, Richard sent me a, a, a note saying, uh, can you make it to my house? Because you, you're in London and Shrivenham's in Oxford, but I live in Hampshire, and it might be easier if you just drove down or got the train down to where I'm in Hampshire. So I said, yeah, fine, no problem. So I think it was about August 1997, I wandered into this place, and Richard had loads of dogs, loads of kids, and Lizzie. <laughs> and I thought, oh, Poor lady. Straight away, I thought, poor lady, because there's like military <laughs> everywhere, you know. And no, she ruled. She was the ruler. He, he was just, you know, did as he's told. And she, I get shuffled into his office. Lizzie makes us a cup of tea. 
uh, there's a glass of whiskey on there and biscuits and what have you. So we sit down and Richard starts talking and said, well, you've got four interesting proposals here. He said, are they serious? And I said, yeah, we can talk about each one. So we did. So that was like an hour. Then we carried on talking and he said, well, what do you really want to do? And I said, I'm very interested in, and I, I said it at the time, you know, why did the German German army go from partisan and Kampfung, you know, partisan, countering partisans to bandit hunting? Or, you know, doesn't, doesn't make sense. There has to be a rationale there because the Germans don't do this without meaning. Said, yeah, okay. That sounds logical, but you have to present the paper. So I presented a paper and I got told November that I was now part of the scheme, the academic scheme, on the strength of the paper. And then I got a call saying, would I come to a meeting to discuss how to proceed and that my second, my second supervisor would be there, which was Chris Bellamy. Chris wrote a book called Absolute War afterwards. Really, really top historian. So <laughs> Richard, we arrive at this meeting and Richard says to me, um, well, I don't know much about the Germans, so I'm going to talk to you as like I did my French army, because he did French army for his PhD. So his discussion about how he went through the process of dealing with French archives pretty much mirrored what would be my experience of going through German archives. It was like pretty parallel. In the middle was Chris Bellamy, who, <laughs> who <laughs> every time I wrote something, he would write on it in Russian words, in Russian, and I was expected to translate it. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and then you got Richard talking about war. And anyway, so I, so I, that was the first sitting. Then there was a second one, and Richard said, Chris has got some ideas. So basically it was, go to the archives, find out what there is, do a literature review, combine the two together, and see what we've got. So I swanned off to um, America because the German archives were an awful place to get to, not because of travel but to actually get the records it's not like you go into the national archives in college park and just read the, the, the microfilm or whatever the, the tape the reels of tape in freiburg you could wait for weeks and a file will never turn up so i went to america and i, I just did massive everything on bandon mccann and i give you an idea of the scale of paper. Uh, I posted $1,500 worth of stuff back to the UK. That's copy. That's not the reels. I also had another 30 reels of film plus 140 microfiche of the foreign military studies and all the other things, plus the whole of the war crimes trials. And then I got into discussions with the guys in the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., plus the lads in um, College Park. And they said, right, well, we'll plan a second trip when you come to look at other files which are not 
in the National Archives and not on the front benches of the US Holocaust Museum and what have you. So get back. I write a paper, get a lot of assistance from a friend of mine who's uh, a German military historian. Because I hadn't, up to that stage, done anything like that before, where you're combining archival stuff with books. I produced this paper. It's 4,000 words. <clears throat> Send it to Richard. Richard sends, says, come along. I want to have a, we're going to have a very, very long meeting. So expect a half day. So I turn up and I walk into this, I walk into the room. Uh, Steph says you can go in there. I'm going into the room as all these people are coming out. And I heard Richard shout, I've just read a really excellent paper. So I'm looking around saying, thinking, who the hell are these? And he said, I'm talking to you, young blood. <laughs> so we come in and we sit down and he says, look, I'm really pleased you're upgraded. So now what we have to talk about is other stuff. But before Chris comes in, I want you to know certain things. And basically, he laid down the ground rules to me, which is, first of all, you're, we're going back to what you said when we first met, which is, you want to be a writer, so I'm going to make you a writer. But you have to learn to be self-sufficient. He said, you're a demon reviewer uh, and writer and researcher, but you've got to learn to write on your own rapidly so i want you to do so many papers over the next few weeks i'm going to send you a subject and i want 1500 words within 24 hours to show me that you're doing it right so i did them and uh, one of them nearly got published in one of his publications and i said look right i'd rather you didn't I'd rather you talk to somebody else, and he did. And that person was published, and I wasn't on a subject that was pretty close to what I was doing. But I didn't want to be involved in any hassles of editing and all the rest, so I just wanted to get on. So I went away, did more research, came back, uh, and then we started to have these... How would you put it? They were conversations of the greatest detail... I've ever come across because when you're working with your friends and your colleagues and the group, you can talk about kind of things and, you know, like the Germans use this support bag and, and what have you. But I didn't have those discussions with Richard. I, what we're talking about with Richard is, so what's going through that NCO's mind? That, that moment when they're doing that NCO, what's going through that NCO's mind? Have you... Have you unpicked what he's doing? And then he would say, well, okay, you've got this dodgy Luftwaffe major doing what he's doing, but do you understand him? And I don't mean, you know, what the orders are saying in translation and in English and then, you know, back to German and all that stuff. Do you understand where he's coming from? Do you understand his take on dogma and doctrine and what he's putting across? Have you read beyond his letters and his reports and, and what have you? And I suddenly found myself changing um, and going away from what would be 
you know, your standard military historian with, you know, Richard used to call it, you know, map flags on a map kind of scenario, to a more cultural thing. And, and I said to him, you're pushing me into social history. Is this a problem, being a military historian who's doing social history? And he said, no, you should be doing more social history and more cultural history because military history isn't going to teach you anything. You've read all the military history books. Have they taught you anything? No. So now you have to go and look in a different way. And I suddenly discovered that I was learning, I was going about reconstructing myself away from the subject that I'd set up by a man who was at the heart of that subject that I'd started with. Does that sound crazy to you? It, no, I, I, I get it. He's, he's, he's seen something there that needs a, f a fresh perspective and he's help, yeah. helping you find that perspective. You see, he, he did this, he did that book, Art of War, you mm -hmm. know, where the, the, the guy's on the ground and he's talking about when he was in the TA and all of that stuff. And, and then there's, you know, all the complicated ranks of the German NCOs and what's it to be to kill people and then the actualities of war and all of that stuff. He said, you need to go a bit further than that. You have to go beyond that to another level. And so he said, you, could, you know, you've got to put the geography, if you like, you've got to take the geography of what's happening with these units and really understand what that means in actual practice. So you've actually, and I, I use the term, reading maps like German soldiers. It's actually a very funny business, reading maps like German soldiers. I mean, having sat with a German soldier and asked him how he read a map, it was everything completely different to the way I would have thought I read a map or any other soldier who read a map. Yeah? Uh, and so um, what I got with Richard was I was not only becoming self-sufficient and independent, but I was creating, I was building a, a huge confidence because... I was able to cope with my subject in a, on, a, on a more solid way because the conversations I was having with Richard, and there was a lot, I mean, you know, you listen to what young students say now about their supervision. Um, you know, the amount of money they're paying for, the, for, the, for what they're not getting, I, I couldn't dare tell them because... Some, some people would be really upset that I would spend hours talking to Richard Holmes, of all people, and what, you're not talking military history, you're talking about other stuff? Are you mad? <laughs> um, and, and no. And I tried to say this on a programme. Richard, Richard's attitude towards things isn't the way that you think he was when he's in that television stuff because uh, I never I don't know that guy I've tried very hard to find him I've watched all of those war walks and battlefields and western front stuff he isn't the dude that I'm talking to the dude I'm talking to is a, was like um, he's like your mentor your supervisor your friend and your guardian and your teacher rolled into a way. And all of this stuff is coming out. 
and he's actually extracting stuff, and you're thinking, hey, did I actually say that? <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> and we, we, I still remember the, the um, I went to the Viva, and obviously there's, you know, your external examiner, there's Chris and there's Richard. And I got thrown with a question straight away, heavy, full on, no messing about, straight in the face question. And I could feel Richard tense up to speak. And I thought, no, I've got to take over. And I did. Okay, now the Viva was long. It was like four and a half hours. Um, and we hammered out a lot of stuff and discussed stuff. And, and the PhD, the only bit about the PhD that had to change was we all agreed that we wouldn't have an English title. We'd actually use the word. And I wasn't sanctioned for that because I'd assumed that you couldn't use the word. So Bandon became from was the thesis title. Then we went down the pub <laughs> and Richard said, well, I thought for a minute there, you were, you know, you might be on rocky ground, but you seem to handle it very well. And, then, and that was it. We never talked about it again. It was like, you're now Dr. Blood, you're one of us, so let's talk about other stuff. And we, we did. And then, well, I mean, Richard supported so much of what I did because he did the forward to Hitler's Bandit Hunters. And, you know, I went through a lot of pain asking him. And what I said was, look, you changed the whole thing. You've been a part of it. I'd like you to do the forward. He said, well, why didn't you ask? He <laughs> <laughs> just asked. Well, I thought, you know, like supervisor, you. No, no, don't worry about it. Okay, we've this is going to be edited down seriously, but we've been chatting now for four hours. So I think we're going to get ourselves a drink and probably chat some more. But as far as this particular conversation goes, it has been utterly fascinating. We will be pimping the book quite seriously because it is a very fine, very fine work, Phil. That's very kind. I just can't thank you enough for spending the time to <laughs> a lot of time to um to delve into it with me because there's you've opened my eyes. I need to go back and reread a few sections of it now with a slightly different perspective because there's a lot in it. And it's, I think it's vital that we, we definitely look at the actions that were taken in a, in a new light and make sure we incorporate a lot of the, the units that we thought might've, might've gotten away with it. I would just like to thank Dr. Philip Blood once again for joining us on History Hacks Hedgehopping Show. You can buy Birds of Prey from our very own bookshop. If you head to bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, you will be able to find Phil's book ready to be read. It is a fascinating read. And amazingly, we have barely scratched the surface for some of the elements that he discusses. So please do grab a copy. And until the next time, thank you so much for listening. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.